Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you all. I am Julie Coleman, and I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. Beautiful day outside, isn't it? In a day pretty much like this one, um, I was sitting in the faculty lounge at the Christian school I was teaching at where my kids attended, and my daughter's fourth grade teacher came um, into the faculty lounge, and she said, Julie, you need to know what your daughter gave as a prayer request this morning. Well, I was getting ready to be humiliated, pretty sure, so I, everybody leaned forward, the whole faculty, everybody's listening to what Doris had to say, and she said, she said, would you please pray that my mom would give us a home-cooked meal? It's been so long. <laughs> well, yes, I was humiliated, but the whole faculty burst out laughing because we were all working mothers and all struggling to raise children, teach school, do the whole thing, and we knew how impossible it was. Well, I sat up and I said, okay, that's it. From, from this day forward, I'm going to go home tonight because my husband had been away all week, which was why we were going to McDonald's so often. I said, I'm going to make meatloaf and green beans and mashed potatoes. I said, good home-cooked food. They're going to love it. So the faculty meeting went long that afternoon. About 5 o'clock, I wearily trudged down the hall on my way out to the car, and I stuck my head in Doris's room, and I said, keep praying. We're going to Wendy's. <laughs> You know, guilt. It's part of being a mom, isn't it? All you that are moms out there, you're guilty all the time. You can't do it good enough. You can't do it um, often enough. Um, you, it's, uh, it's just so hard all the time. And I think that the same feeling, even if you're not a mom, is present in our spiritual relationship with God. Uh, most of us, um, a lot of times guilt is really the thing that rules our day. You know, We're not loving him enough. We're not serving him enough. Or we're not doing enough good in the world to change. We're supposed to be out there changing the world. And it's an ever-present burden that's weighing us down. I need to do more. Ever feel like that? We want our relationship to God to be the best it can be, but we fail all the time. So we feel guilt every time we approach him, or even sometimes even when we just think of him. Guilt. Well, if you see that tendency in yourself, you're going to be happy that we're going to spend this beautiful Easter morning looking at three words on the cross, the last three words that Jesus said as he hung there, because the answer to this struggle is the, lies in these words. It's his promise for freedom from the exhausting burden of guilt that we all carry around, for freedom to have a kind of relationship God means for you to have. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll get started looking at the passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the people that are here this morning. We thank you for your word and how powerful it is, and we just ask your blessing on it this morning as we look at these last words of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, before we read, I'll just give you a little background. We're picking up here in the middle of the crucifixion story in John. Um, Jesus had already suffered so much. He'd been mocked, he'd been beaten, he'd been whipped, um, and then, of course, hanging on the cross, all the agony that was associated with that, that humiliation, that suffering. But the worst of all was the moment when God the, uh, turned his face away from the son he loved. And as the world plunged into darkness for three hours, for three hours, Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sin of the world. And now, this is what's next. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, 
I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of the hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. These last three words carry the most profound message that any three words can. And their message has the impact to, uh, has, should have an impact on all of us, every part of our lives. You know, it's kind of interesting he asked for something to drink because on the way to the cross, or on the way with the cross on his back to the hill of Calvary, um, he was offered uh, wine with myrrh in it. Now, that would have been like a sedative. It was an act of mercy that people were offering that to. It was drugged wine, basically. But he refused it because he knew that he had to suffer with no buffer in order to fulfill what he was there to do. But now, here he is, many hours later, at the point of death on the cross, and he wants something to be heard. He wants to say something that's going to be heard. So he calls for a drink to moisten his throat so he can talk. And with that loud voice, like Matthew and Mark tell us it was loud, he shouts, it is finished! Why is this so important for those around the cross to hear? Well, to look at it, you have to look at the Greek verb that he was using, or that John used to tell the story. Um, the Greek uh, is teleo, and it denotes a carrying out of a task, a sense of completion, okay? Now, there's many ways it was used in the ancient Greek, and I'll give you a few examples to give you a full benefit of what that word means. An artist might have said that word when he finished painting in order to announce, the picture is perfect. A servant might have confidently said it when it was asked by a master if the work he had been assigned to do was complete. A judge might have said it when he excuse me, issued a ruling that a sentence had been completed. The judge would be saying, the sentence, justice, has been served. A merchant might have said it after stamping a bill, the debt has been paid in full. And in addition to what that word means, you need to know this, the verb tense he used, because verb tenses are very important in the Greek. This was the perfect verb tense, which describes a completed action that does not need repeating. Done, once and for all, complete. Now it's interesting to me that he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. I was wondering what it is. What is he talking about? And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people out there with blogs and articles, and they all say something a little different. So when I, I was kind of trying to figure out what, what he was talking about, well, then I realized that when I was looking up this word and doing a word study on it, that Jesus actually said, finish, three times within the 24 hours that he died. And so I thought to look at those things, each of them really had a different thing he was talking about, being finished. So we'll look at those this morning and then look at the implica implications of that. So the first time he used the word was in John 17, 4. He just finished the Passover meal with his disciples. They were going to go out to the garden but, uh, of Gethsemane, but before they did, he prayed. And when he prayed, this beautiful long prayer, they call it the high priest's prayer, this is what he prays in 17.4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And that having accomplished 
is the word telao. So the first thing he meant was he was finished with his earthly ministry. He was finished with all of the things that God had sent him to do. Well, what had he come to do? I've listed a few here. First, he had come to fulfill the law. Early in his ministry, he told his disciples, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He did it. He obeyed every stroke and every letter of its writing. Okay, he came to do the Father's will. That's the second thing. He said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that he was completely obedient to the Father, even to death on the cross. A third thing he'd come to do was preach the truth. Interesting conversation between him and Pilate before he went to the cross. He said, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the, into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So it's why he called himself the king. He tries, why he called himself the light of the world. He preached the truth about the kingdom of God. He revealed truth about God the Father. He was teaching, teaching, teaching all the time. Every opportunity. We think of the miracles maybe as the biggest thing that he did, but they weren't. They were just the validity. Jesus. 
Now, if you were to guess how many prophecies there were in the Bible about Jesus before he came, and I'm talking written hundreds and thousands of years before his arrival, I bet you wouldn't even come close. There were over 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. Matthew alone has 128 of them. I learned that little fact in seminary. But 300 prophecies and more that were fulfilled in his lifetime. Well, what were some of the prophecies? Well, first of all, there was a promise of a redeemer to come. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, he was promised to come and to, to get between, make enmity between Satan and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman was Christ. He was given to, a uh, promise was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of a descendant who would bless the nations of the world. Um, so many, many years, uh, thousands of years before Christ came. Then a promise was given to Moses and the people of Israel that there was a prophet greater than he who would come and you'd better listen to him, is what the Lord said. And that's in Deuteronomy. There was a promise of David to a, of a descendant whose reign would be forever in 2 Samuel. And then promises were given through David and the prophets of a suffering servant who would redeem his people. Psalm 22 is a good example of that and Isaiah 53. Very familiar passages. But the final time he spoke the word was the very end of his suffering, just before he gave up his spirit and died. And this time is the one I really want to focus on. The work on the cross was complete and effective. Again, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What was finished? What did he accomplish on the cross? Well, first of all, he abolished the law. The law condemned us in our ability to keep it and to be completely holy like God. He destroyed it. In Colossians it says, He made you alive together with him, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. Hallelujah. Love that. And a great exchange had taken place. The blood of the innocent had been given to pay for the guilty. The eternal debt owed for the sin of mankind paid in full. And the judge of the universe declared justice had been done. That we've been cleared of all charges. Innocent. The power of sin was vanquished once and for all time. Satan no longer has power over us. Colossians said that he made a public display of his enemies, including Satan, having triumphed over them. Another thing the cross accomplished, it removed the barrier of our sin that stood between us and God. The veil in the temple at the moment he died, we're told in Matthew that it ripped from the top to the bottom. God to us, ripped open, and no longer uh, would we be apart from God. His cross was a reconciling work. So we can approach God without fear, without guilt, knowing we can find mercy to help us in our time of need. Nothing more is needed to be done. Redemption, salvation, complete. It's finished. You know, Hebrews calls Jesus our high priest. The Old Testament priest's job in the temple was to offer sacrifices to pay for the sin of the people. And there was a lot of sin to atone for. 
So the priest was on his feet all day, slaughtering animal after animal after animal. There was no time to rest. But this is what Hebrews says about Christ, our high priest. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Priests don't stand down. They, they stand up all day long. But Jesus sat down. Why? He was finished. There was no more work to do. It is finished. When Jesus shouted those words, this was not the moan of the defeated. It was not a sigh of resignation. It was a loud shout of victory. It was a triumphant recognition that he had fully accomplished what he came to do. So what? How should Jesus' proclamation impact us today? Well, first we need to understand, we have nothing left to do. He's already done it. Look what Paul says about us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We are seated just like Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. Even while we're living here on earth, we're already seated. Jesus sat down because he was finished. Everything, everything had been accomplished, so there's nothing left for us to do either. It's all been done for us, so God has given us a seat. It is finished. It's the basis of our relationship with God. Everything was done for us and handed to us as a gift when we believed. Our relationship with him starts with grace, and it continues into eternity because of grace. It never changes. Yet somehow, we seem to feel at times that we have to work to keep up the relationship. We read the New Testament, see all that instruction that all the writers gave us, Jesus gave us, about how a Christian should best live. And we try to do it with all of our might. But too often we fail and we wonder, how can God love us when we're such a disappointment to him? Well, in the Bible, guilt is not an emotion at all. It's never used as an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a standing. It's a place of being. You're innocent or you're guilty, one or the other. And today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been declared not guilty. God is not up in heaven making a list and checking it twice. He is not waiting to, for you to make a sin so he can pounce and punish you. The sins from your past and the sin in your future are all covered, all of it, paid in full. God has declared you free. So in closing, you might have noticed that the official tax deadline is not until April 17th this year. You may not, we always notice because we're always falling on April 15th. <laughs> but it's not this year, it's April 17th. And the reason is, is that in the District of Columbia, April 16th is a holiday. I don't know if you know this. It's a celebration of the day that Abraham Lincoln set the 3,000-plus slaves in Washington, D.C., free. Now, this was not the Emancipation Proclamation. It was called something else. I can't think of the name right now. I should have written it down. But 
It was the time when the people were uh, in, in the slaves in Washington, D.C. were uh, proclaimed to be free men. Nearly eight months later, Lincoln issued a similar order for the rest of the southern states, the Emancipation Proclamation. And of course, it wasn't enforced in the states that were in rebellion and that were in the middle of a war with the um, Union. But as the Union Army took control of the Confederate regions, the proclamation provided legal framework for freeing more than three million slaves. Three million slaves. Then after the war, the 13th Amendment was voted in and it became illegal to own a slave in any state in the Union. All the slaves were free. Imagine that, living your life in slavery and then finally being a free man. You know, they didn't have to register anywhere. Uh, they didn't have to obtain documentation about being free. There was nothing more to do. It was a status that had been granted them. They could start right away, beginning earning wages and build life as a free man because the United States government had proclaimed them free. Jesus made a proclamation about you that day on the cross. It is finished. He did what he came to do. No stone was left unturned, no task left incomplete. Your freedom from the power and guilt of sin has been proclaimed by the one who won it for you. Let the, these words sink into your heart. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Rest in what he's done for you. Stop striving to somehow make him love you more because he can't love you more. His love for you is already perfect. And he'll never love you less because his love is perfect. Your sin is dealt with, your penalty is paid, and there's nothing more to do to, than when it comes to your relationship with God. You are free. It is finished. It really is. He did it all. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus and his faithfulness to complete what you laid before him. Thank you, God, that in his last dying moments, he gave us a proclamation that changes us forever. It is finished. Everything's been done. Thank you, Lord. Thank you we can rest on that, that we never have to worry about whether you love us or whether we're being faithful enough or whether we're doing enough good things, but it all rests on the work of the cross, and it's done. Help us, God, to uh, rest in that fact as we go through our lives, and help it, Lord, to help us to love you even more for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.